everybody, and welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published by, uh, well, published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, the ongoing at three and some years in COVID-19 crisis. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Odyssey, YouTube, BitChute, Brightyon, all the places you do to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And 2023 is no different than the prior year. I don't do this alone. Please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth, the one, the only, Matthew Crawford. How are you, sir? Hello. Hello. Um, you, look, you look great today. Um, this is a special occasion, I take it. Uh, no, but, uh, I, I happened to put on the jacket and you, and you just happened to be wearing the tie today. Yeah. Uh, that was the opportunity to say, oh, of course, this is a special occasion. This is perhaps our most important show yet, but you're ever <laughs> honest. We threw on oh. jackets because guess what? They're comfortable and we like to look good for our friends. <laughs> so without further ado, who are those friends? Now it's my understanding that one of our two guests today rarely does public appearances at all and perhaps it's for good reason but we are joined by someone new and someone very familiar please allow me to introduce dr jessica rose and liz wilner how are you guys hi where's jess hi, liz. jess has become hidden behind a ball of black but that's okay. Uh, Jessica's frozen but but we have liz and, and and liz and liz is the creator Oh no! We we have Jessica back now. Uh, Liz and Jessica, Liz and Jessica have been working Yay! together because <laughs> because they both have done tremendous things with uh, the vaccine adverse events. Uh, re well, uh, uh, something system <laughs> <laughs> attempt at a reporting system. Reporting system. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I should know this by now, right? Right. I've only said it like five hundred times. Um, though, though Liz <laughs> and Jessica have said it 5,000 times. So I, I'll, I'll let them explain actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, Jessica, do you want to just very quickly introduce yourself to the audience who definitely knows who you are? And then we'll turn to Liz to give uh, an introduction of her own. Yes. I'm really excited. First of all, um, I've been here before. I'm Jessica Rose. Uh, I love this podcast because it's like the coolest podcast because it's like the place where only like you know, the really important stuff goes down that not everybody knows about. That's the stuff that I like. Um, yeah, so I look at VAERS data, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System data set. <laughs> and, uh, and Liz is here today, who she'll introduce herself. She needs no introduction in my case, or my books, but we'll see. Um, so on to you, Liz. Who are you? Hi, I'm Liz, Hi. and I created Open VAERS. And I'm the mom of a vaccine injured child. She was injured by the varicella vaccine um, about now eight years ago. And I was personally um, also injured 
30 years ago by a flu shot, the one and only, uh, gave me pericarditis and a pericardial fusion. So no, it's never mild. I will just say that now, never mild. Um, and um, that led me to look into theirs once my daughter was finally feeling better um, and was kind of appalled at what I found. And so I made my own. Now, how did you find out about VARES? Because I get the impression that uh, not only in the COVID context, but in all previous vaccines, it's not as if this is a system marketed to vaccine injured people or people, patients or, or people receiving vaccines that may eventually need to report. So how did you find out about the system? I'm trying to remember now. Um, I, I believe one of the people in one of the groups in Facebook that I was in told me about it when I was searching about what happened to my daughter. Um, when I was injured, uh, which was within 48 hours of the shot and I was healthy before, I said to the doctors while laying in the hospital bed, could this have been the shot? <laughs> you know, like a deer in the headlights. And, um, and they all looked at me and said, no, and walked out of the room. Really? Um, yeah. And so- They just said no. Like they yeah. didn't even consider that it was a possible- No, not possible. Reason. Yeah. Wow. Um, it, no mention of theirs, no mention. When I was doing the research on my daughter's injury, I actually did find in the flu shot that pericarditis was um, was a reportable event. And um, yeah, no. Yeah, finding out just how long people have been gaslighted over things like this has been one of the um, uh, jaw-dropping shocks for me during the, the pandemic. Yeah, um, it... Uh, I mean, everybody I know whose child had autoimmune encephalitis like mine from a vaccine injury has been gaslit. Um, you, you still can't get the doctors at anywhere that treats it to admit that it's a problem. Uh, most of the programs still push vaccines on their children that are in the programs. It, it's, it's horrific. Now, um, you have... <laughs> You have a really fascinating story for a lot of reasons. Um, first and foremost, I just want to show um, our audience, this is Open Vares. If for some reason you haven't visited it yet, I'm sure you've at least seen this sort of classic red box uh, setup, uh, perhaps shared on Twitter. Um, obviously, this is set up to be very easy to read uh, for the general public. Can you explain, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Was that intentional? What is the purpose of Open Vares? Who's the audience? What are you trying to convey here? Yeah, so um, what I found when I went on the Vares system was as a developer, it was really hard to use and, and to make it, to get, you know, actually accurate results out of it. And what I actually saw over time was that people were um, not using the interface correctly and coming out with results that were incorrect, making memes out of them and putting them into the general public and be like, well, wait, no, you can't have more than 100%, right? Like you, you just can't. <laughs> um, but they didn't understand the results they were getting in theirs. And um, every other uh, injury system in the world basically um, has some form of yellow card summary system for the people who want to see the numbers but are not capable or do not have the education to use the, an interface, at least like the one like the CDC built. And so, um, 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 thus, OpenVares was trying to fill that gap. Um, but at the same time, um, actually, one of my primary missions was to highlight the stories 
highlight the narrative field because I felt like that's the thing that gets lost with the numbers. I mean, the m numbers tell a story, but they don't tell the individual stories. And, and every single number in there is a person with a history and a child or a mother and um, someone who died or somebody they had to take care of for five years and figure out how to treat without a doctor um, helping them. And so, so to me, each one of these numbers represents a person. And one of the main goals was to be able to allow people to browse the stories. Um, and that's what you can do yeah. if you go into the search area. Now, it, it seems odd to me that if this system is in place, it's for a reason. And it, it's my understanding, like, for example, up here in Canada, we don't have anything like even VARES. We have a really difficult to use. Oh, uh, Matthew's watching the video. Um, we have a very difficult to use system that doctors have to, you know, fill out a physical form and mail into their regional office or whatever. And then the reports basically get, can be stopped and frequently are at like three different levels, municipal, provincial, and then even removed from the federal database if they get in at all. Point is, none of that is public. So it seems that VAERS, given that it apparently seems to be intended for the public, you would think that it would be set up to be at least somewhat readable to even even doctors who seem to have trouble reading this. So I'm curious why it took someone innovative and motivated like you to create the system that it, it seems is supposed to be there anyway, or it seems VAERS should have been anyway. Why is there such a discrepancy between what VAERS is and what you've put together? I think that um, it wasn't intended really for the lay public. Think So the first round of VAERS was created without any kind of interface at all. MedAlerts was the first interface. Um, and um, the first round of VAERS was just CSV files, I believe, that people could download. And generally, people downloading that were researchers. Then MedAlerts created um, their system. VAERS copied it, essentially, and put their system up, their interface up. Um, funnily enough, the, um, the uh, MedAlert system at least in its first iteration, was uh, built on an access database. Um, I don't believe that VAERS itself had that. They used something else. Anyway, so I just, I think the answer really is simply that the, the intended audience was always, a, you know, was always a researcher, not a layperson. And the assumption always was that that would mean they would know what they were doing inside this database. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. And I, I did not know that MedAlerts came first. And um, I think it's okay for me to say that it looks as though we're actually going to be speaking with uh, Steve Rubin, the creator of MedAlerts, in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to be very curious to ask him about that whole process. But before we get into what's happened, uh, your experience in the COVID era, um, I want to turn to Jessica and, and piggyback on what you just said, Liz. This is, it seems to have been intended for, for researchers. So Jessica, that's what you've come to uh, prominence uh, in, in doing is taking this VAERS data, uh, even before it gets into a readable system uh, like OpenVAERS, though I'm sure OpenVAERS has made it much easier. Um, 
what are you what what summarize what you've used this system for what you find it to be useful for what are its deficits and uh and what and what's new basically before we get into the whole story of what happened here okay so uh i came to start using vers data pretty much by default i was looking for uh, an adverse event reporting system data set that was readily downloadable, first of all, because I was, I was just going to be playing around with the data to teach myself how to use R. I had no like um, uh, goals other than that when I started this. I do now. Um, but so VARES, as Liz said, you can download CSV files, which, you know, you can just open them up in Excel and, and even if you're not like a, a data scientist, you can, you can play with this data pretty easily after downloading it. But the thing is, um, it's uploaded weekly and it comes in three different files for the domestic data alone. And it also has a foreign data file set that you, know, you can download as well. So unless you have um, the, the skills, I suppose, to merge these three files that represent the symptoms, like the adverse events, the data, which is kind of like the demographic data, and the VAX data, which is all the, the data related to the product, then you're not really optimizing the information per person. And as Liz also pointed out, each VARES ID that makes it to this front-end system is a person. And so you really want as much data as you can. So there, there's like 52 variables, I think, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. I should know this by my heart, but whatever. Uh, there are a lot of variables to work with. So um, basically, uh, I, 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 I saw an, uh, an opportunity once I started digging into this to, to tell everyone who wasn't looking, which was a lot of people, probably still is, that there's a really big difference between the, the number of reports being filed in the context of the COVID products versus like the last 30 years, because VARES has been on the go for 30 years. Um, that's what it's for. It's a pharmacovigilance tool. So what that means is it's designed to detect safety signals in data uh, from the data that weren't detected in pre-market testing or clinical trials. So if you see a signal in the form of a much larger number of adverse event reports for a specific adverse event, you know, in the context of the last 30 years, then that warrants investigation by the owners of the data, which is the FDA and the CDC. You can do PRR analysis, you can do Bayesian analysis, you can do causality assessments. There's all sorts of stuff that they have done historically to determine whether or not a product should be pulled from the market, for example. So I, I noticed Right away, I mean right away, because I started downloading this data in December 2020 because I anticipated, you know, I, I needed it for, to play with and I also anticipated that there might be a problem. And there was already a problem with, I'll just refer to deaths here, in January. So we had already exceeded 50 deaths, which is, you know, the, the cutoff so-called for the number of people allowed to die in the context of a biological or a pharmaceutical product. We'd already exceeded that in January, but nobody said anything about it. The owners of the data didn't say anything. So I started getting a bit louder and I published a couple of papers about it. I'm like, hello, 
There's a problem uh, going on in VARES in the context of the COVID products. I know that everybody doesn't look at VARES every day, but I am. Hello. And by the way, did you see the uh, the safety signal analysis that came out um, from FOIA uh, published by the FI yes. Times uh, just a few days ago? Sorry. And uh, and by the way, for anybody who's wondering, that was safety signal analysis that the CDC, they said that they had done, they said that they hadn't done, they said that they had done, it kind of went back and forth. And then finally they published it and it was from July of 2021. And there were hundreds of safety signals hit, including death. Um, but it's clear, you know, in, in my judgment, um, I, I'm guessing, uh, well, I'll, I'll let Jessica, you know, give her own opinion. But in my judgment, I think that um, a lot of those safety signals, including a lot of the most dangerous ones, were already present in January. Oh, there's no doubt. I, I looked at. Sorry, I was going to say it's clear they have no. They have no cutoff levels, right? right? There's no stopping condition. There's no stopping conditions. And and I'm not even convinced those PRRs were done at all. Um, I think they did them in response to the FOIA. Um, Me and too. It's also, I can't really find any evidence that PRRs have ever been used as a stopping condition in the past. While they've used PRRs to support positions, I, I have not seen that. So... That's interesting. I'll, I'll go back and look at the metadata in the spreadsheet. I have the spreadsheet, by the way. Um, it, it might be interesting to see when the spreadsheet was created, but I'll, I'll let you know if uh, if it's interesting. I, I'm actually going to take on faith for the moment that they did do the PRR analysis. They did create this vaccine safety <laughs> technical work group. Um, and I, I personally believe that this is, um, you know, having um, uh, gone in and looked at the military health database, and right. seeing what happened there. I believe that that database was taken offline in August of 2021, I think because there were safety signals. So I do think the safety right. signal analysis was being done and that informed the decision to manipulate the, the military health database. Okay, yeah, so, so, oh, sorry, go for it, Jessica. Well, I just wanted to say of the hundreds of, I think it was 770 safety signals that they detected um, of, of those, uh, it was two thirds of them, I believe that had higher signals than myocarditis. So one of the things I've been saying over and over again is like, why the hell is only myocarditis being talked about here as an adverse event? Because the neurological symptoms are, are, uh, you know, it's more debilitating for many people. Like uh, there's a lot of people who are like, you know, seizing all the time and in wheelchairs. I mean, Okay, myocarditis is bad, but that from day to day, and that's how I think about it. It's like the 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 sustained pain and suffering from day to day. When you think about neurological injuries, is very bad. So how come nobody's talking about that among all the other things? You know what I mean? So it's like, and this is proof positive. It's not just evidence; it's proof that all of these things were already known about. So why in the hell was it only myocarditis that got the special M MMWR reporting? Why is this the only thing that we're still talking about now in the context of you know, adverse events uh, in kids or in athletes, et cetera? So- well, and, and even 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 tinnitus. I was watching uh, Josh Gutzgau and and uh, James Lyons Weiler talk about this exact set of data, and they and Josh pointed out, in a lot of cases, something as simple seeming at this point 
as tinnitus, which is a ringing in the ear, it's resulted in people taking their own lives because yes. it can be debilitating in its, own, in its own way, in a way that I think we may have lost perspective of here. And I think that's the point you're making, Jessica, is like, this is crazy. Like myocarditis, likely permanent, possibly uh, fatal in prognosis, um, a heart condition, very, very serious. But that's our new kind of baseline of what people can expect when they take these shots. When there's this whole world of things underneath that are literally resulting in death in a lot of cases. So, Matthew, go ahead. Yeah, and, and I'll mention um, uh, before uh, before this entire event with this uh, experimental biological product rollout, um, I've had tremors since I was ten years old, and uh, they they were mild enough growing up that I could usually hide them, right? And it's like uh, it, it it was something where um, if I was nervous, they would come out and they would be harder to control. But if I if I remained in motion. You know, and uh, in most of what you do as a child, you know, you're, you're in motion. Um, I could I could sort of hide the fact that that they were there. But you are sort of trying to figure out what is going on the whole time. And I I just assumed that I had some sort of an injury. Right. That that hadn't been taken care of when now when I look back, I think it, it was, you know, it was likely more most likely uh, the vaccines that, you know, 10 year old. Uh, I can't even I don't even remember what's on the schedule. Um, but I, I do remember that there were vaccines at, at the age of 10. I'm going to bring something up. Um, I'm, I'm going to bring up open bears for a moment, because uh, one thing that um, that I want the audience to understand is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, these counts are reports, not, yes. not actual total, uh, absolute, the absolute numbers. Like this is a, it's at least this bad in a sense, Right. Because some yes. of these, some of these reports, and especially during the COVID era, when there have been so many, there have been doctors or nurses who took many patients and rolled them up into one report at times, and and so you know we don't even know you know the true number of events that have been reported because it would take going through each one of these by hand, reading every single one of the over a million. It, it, it's it's way over a million, right? I'm not I'm not making that up, right? Okay, oh, yeah, way yeah. over a million reports and going through them by hand to count up what's actually going on. So this is this is a minimum, and this is due to like you know search strings and sort of like you know trying to do the best programmatically to come up with with answers to this. And and these are only first reports. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, that's a really interesting question, actually. So um, they're, they're only first reports. They, they, they reserve the right to not update. And, um, and those updates can be significant, right? Like there was that Dr. Michael in Florida very early in the pan, like he got one of the first vaccines and he got ITP, uh, which is idiopathic thrombocytopenia, thrombosis, something, purpura, something like that. And, um, and he eventually died, like within two weeks of the vaccination, I believe. I'd have to check the dates exactly. Within three days, he had the ITP. They reported it after the ITP. He had a whole team of doctors from across the country working on him. Everybody pretty much agreed it was caused by the vaccine. Um, and then he passed away. But the report was made before he passed away. So his, um, his death was never recorded into the public-facing data. Now, 
that's another piece of the puzzle, right? Is that when people talk about VARES and you look at open VARES or the numbers that Jessica's using or anybody else working on VARES, what we're seeing is basically like a copy of a copy of a copy. We don't, this is not the actual database. This is an export from the database. The database itself looks different than this, essentially. And there are reports that are missing. There are reports that were backlogged. There are reports that are still in process. There are reports that um, need follow, like got follow-up and don't make it into the main database. Like, and it seems pretty clear that the reason they don't give us the follow-up information is that they have the database is not designed to do that. And that there's probably a separate follow-up table from is this too technical for your <laughs> like, no, 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 there's likely, so we, we have the table that we see, and then there's likely another table in that database that's the follow-ups. And the only way to track, let's say I put in that the person didn't die, and then, and that death is recorded within the data file. Um, if I want to go back in and say, well, now I've been, it's been reported that he did die, I can't just flip that switch and say, yes, he died because then there's no way to track, there's no metadata. There's, and, and it's clear there's no metadata because they reuse IDs. So, yes. so each, piece, each piece you talk about has a problem, essentially. <laughs> wow, they reuse IDs. Yeah. And, and, and therefore keep no pre, prior, right? They don't keep, they don't keep copies of each case. Not that I, can tell so wow um, i did not know that that's wow so uh, yeah i have evidence of the reuse of the id from a friend of a friend who her daughter went into theirs from the pharmacist um she died within i, I might get this the date like the hours wrong but it was something like within 36 hours of getting the vaccine she passed away from diabetic ketoacidosis. And I think a lot of those are getting missed actually. But anyways, they reported her through the pharmacy to theirs. She was assigned an ID number. That was in last December. They never gave her the ID number, but within her particulars, um, they contacted me. I was able to find her record. We have screenshots of her record. So then recently they contacted me and said, her record's gone. So I looked and said, okay, well, that's one of the disappeared, right? Some people make it into the CSV and then make it out again. And you're like, what happened? We don't know. There's no metadata. Um, but it got worse than that because then I went on to MetaAlerts and I used their Wayback Machine to try to find that record. And I found somebody else with the same record number. <laughs> and when I looked up that person, I found another record number with that person's data. So it was like a chain so far from what I've researched, it was a chain of three different people using two different record numbers, but wow. I don't even think I'm done. Well, to be fair, it's only 1994. What's, what's the date? It's, it's 1980. What, what year is this? When was what, it built? What, what, what year is, what year is today? Oh, oh, it's 2023. Oh, right. Yeah. We can do that. We, we can actually, we can actually create a system <laughs> that keeps records and, 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 you know, we have, we have someone like Liz doing at home uh, a job that the CDC should have paid someone to do. The CDC owes you back pay. Uh, <laughs> prob probably a substantial amount of back pay. I can't tell you the yeah. hours. <laughs> and, and so just as another example of why this first reports only policy is so problematic. And I've been trying to pull up an example and I'll, I'll still see if I can find one, but there are a lot of example. Oh, here we go. Here's one. I'm going to share my screen. Um, 
sorry, one sec. Let's see. Open Ver search. So check this out. So right here is an example. Age 15. Um, no adverse event. We realized after administration that we had inadvertently given the vaccine to a 15-year-old girl. She is not having any symptoms or problems. We've been monitoring her, so on and so forth. The symptom is product administered to patient of inappropriate age. And there are a lot of these where the only thing recorded is the fact that, oops, this person, when this shot was given to them, they were not authorized to receive it. Or, or rather, the emergency use authorization at the time had not been granted or expanded for a certain age group. And here's the problem. This person will not necessarily, will almost definitely not have their report updated if they do later experience an adverse reaction or die. And think of all of the kids that are now excluded from the data set in a meaningful way because simply yep. because yeah. as a matter of this policy, they're in the system and therefore, oh, we, we don't need to update when they die. And, th and there are examples where that has happened. And a lot of these. Am I am I right? Yes. Uh, Undoubtedly. Um, yeah. You know, Bree has a record. No, you are. There's a huge amount of these. There are thousands. And there are more of these in younger kids. So you're absolutely right. So yeah, it's it's a very, very important point to make. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're lost forever with regard to reporting in the US at least. Yeah. You can so, try yellow card. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so that, that uh, there's a period, there's a point where I wanna ask Matthew to sort of, to, to ask about like the, the deficiencies of VAERS and, and why it may or may not always be the best data set to use. But before we do that, I really want to hear, Liz, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, what has your experience been like in the COVID era running this thing? Um, and how has the world reacted to you? Oh, my goodness. Um, all right. Tell the story. What a story, right? Um, so when I built this, when I put it online, I built it first for me, then I put it online for some friends. I never thought I was doing something wrong. I didn't hide my the underlying registry. Like, I'm a web developer. I know you can do that, right? Um, <laughs> um, but I didn't because I was taking public data and making it public, right? Like, I wasn't... <laughs> Who, who would think there was something wrong with that? Um, I was giving it, you know, <laughs> helping informed consent. Like I wasn't, like I was conforming to everything that should have been okay. Um, and um, so when COVID hit, I put it under its own domain name. I called it Open Bears and, you know, all that. And um, nothing happened at the beginning and it was all cool. And I actually even showed it to friends who were kind of dormies and they thought it was interesting. And um, and then um, a week before licensing or EUA licensing, um, uh, I was notified a few weeks before that an article was gonna come out and I was gonna be in it. Not I was, it was gonna be about me, but I was gonna be in it. That was what I was told. And I was told this by two different people, right? So there was this guy, David Gilbert um, from Vice Magazine. Oh, we're doing an article. Do you have any comment? Blah, blah, blah. Then there was this woman who's contacted me completely separately. Um, Edie, whatever her name was, 
Miller um, from Logically. She's a researcher. And do I have any comment? You know, that kind of thing. And, um, and I had no idea that these two people were actually working together um, and knew each other. And we're friends, friendly. Um, and, um, and they were tag teaming me, basically. And I finally wound up uh, responding and putting some comments to Edie. And I didn't really think that much about it. I thought maybe there'd be a line in some article that was about misinformation or whatever it was. Didn't think about it. Woke up one morning and um, it's like eight o'clock in the morning. And I look at my email and there's already an email in there from um, a local paper. I was in a town. Oh dear. Huh? I said, uh, oh dear. Yeah, of only like 10 to 15,000 people. And she was already asking me for a comment about this article. Like she had already picked it up and then another that they had run it. Like, so before I could even get out of bed that morning and respond to this woman, they had run it in my local paper. Um, and yeah, that's the lovely misogynistic article that um, Vice Magazine ran. Um, and it was clearly intended to take me down, even though I'm really like one of the most boring people on the planet. Like, there's not a lot to say about me. Um, uh, unverified data. They, they don't mention that this is the data that is... Government like, data. This, this is the way the data is in the database that is used by researchers. Right. Um, and and the, the, the idea that, like, unverified, like, that's a weird qualifier because data is data, right? I mean, it, it, it could be, by some definition, verified on different levels. But the fact that you are pulling this into a system verifies that it is the data from VAERS. <laughs> In exactly. a sense, it's self-verifying. Yes. Um, wow, this is, uh, this is very, it, it, it does seem that, um, especially in this era, that, and, and I feel like this started maybe eight years ago, uh, that it became more apparent that a large portion of the media was sort of working um, for any purpose, including intimidation for, uh, I don't know, something like, um, controlling powers. I, I don't, I don't, I just want to leave it open-ended because it, it's, it's not clear to me where that stops. Like if people are just for hire or if, or if it's necessarily, you know, government interests or, or what, but, um, that's, that's terrifying. Yeah. So, um, what, what's even more terrifying, I think about it is, is what like the little amount that they needed to do to manipulate large numbers of people because like they've been building this anti-vax um pointing finger othering um for the last like 20 years yeah that's been building all they had to do was like weaponize that essentially against whoever they want to um and so once this was published then Two, I think, San Francisco newspapers picked up the story as well. They were incredibly misogynistic, like titleized, like, you know, person who runs, you know, world's biggest anti-vax database is just some woman in Piedmont, right? Like, um, they were so, I mean, all they could do was pigeonhole me as like a rich white chick, in, you know, in her basement, bored. Um, and <laughs> they did. Um, because like I have nothing better to do with my time than you know, um, and I'm not a professional, and I don't have clients, and you know, like, like it was, it was truly unbelievable. And then people started showing up at my house because 
people on Twitter shared my address. And then people on Facebook and uh, Nextdoor shared our address. And- um, Do you believe that, guys? Do you, do you believe that? I still find that so They were calling for my arrest, calling for my death, um, calling me Satan. You know, um, uh, there were threads on my local Facebook groups for our town, which were just appalling. Um, somebody egged our house. Um, the day we left, somebody was on next door trying to um, organize a candlelight vigil in front of my house. No, wait, tell them why you left, Liz. Oh, cause our house was egged. And um, our neighbors put up signs and then, oh, and some lovely person screenshotted the, the article and nailed it to like all the telephone poles on my kids' walk to school, like all the way through town. So, um, so that's why we left for about a week. Um, and then we came back and, um, and then they kicked my kids out of school um, midway through the year. And so then we left permanently. And I just want people to understand. So the headline on this article I have pulled up and, and it, it appears to be, there's like the part one and the part two, the tag team that you describe. Mm -hmm. The first article, so the one that Vice later references, the headline is California woman behind anti-vax site outperforming government database. Yeah. So they are pointing out, hey, this person is doing a better job or at a minimum is perceived to be doing a better job. And then they describe that as a bad thing. Right. I just yeah. thought this is like it's a backhanded compliment, first of all. Um, yeah. But I, I, I like my thing is I like looking into who's paying for stuff and conflicts of interest. And you can usually find government in, you know, intervention pretty quick. Uh, and that's exactly what I found. And so people know logically um, is an artificial intelligence company that uh, claims to uh, tr try to uh, prevent um, misinformation online. And its whole story is that it, it started after, uh, after the, the founder uh, Lyric Jane is his name, witnessed uh, the breakdown of public discourse during the 2016 U.S. presidential election and Brexit, which I, I see that kind of sentence on almost every misinformation, disinformation program page that I find. I find it in like the back end. Um, a lot of it has to do with strategies to defeat Donald Trump in 2020, but it's a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting area. But the funding for this came from Amazon, their Alexa fund, which is something I didn't know existed, MIT, which I'm sure Matthew's not surprised about, um, and then a couple of uh, venture capital funds that are, that are represent, they represent European governments. So direct government money coming in to fund this thing. Um, and then a, a couple of others. So this isn't organic. We have to be really clear. It's like Matthew was alluding yeah. to. This is self, like this is transparently a, um, a an anti, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. It's a propaganda campaign. This is not, some person well, and, you know, and let's be clear though it's more than a propaganda campaign liz was put into was put in danger yes and and you know what yes. um, you know, going back like why is it a lot of people have asked me why is it that i 
I started looking into things like researching at the beginning of the pandemic, like why, why I didn't trust certain things. Um, and, you know, like people who follow me on, on Facebook know that I was, um, you know, talking about the hydroxychloroquine research um, back in like March of 2020. And, and I was talking about PCR testing. My wife designs PCR assays. And so, you know, we were discussing the weirdness of the, the CDC, FDA's um, creation of those assays and shutting down everybody else from creating them back in February of 2020. But even before that, I was actually on um, on Facebook um, telling people something is going to happen after the repo markets um, broke, basically. Like, this is an event that's so large that, that you know, the world's going to go weird in some way. I never imagined that it would be like the pandemic, but I'm going to go back 20 years. Um, because, and, and, and this kind of like, Liz, like hearing your story makes me want to tell this. I haven't told it many times publicly, though friends of mine, um, you know, from social media or who have been following my very, who followed my very first blog over 20 years ago, um, know this about me. I, I, I ran a dozen different blogs on a site called Live Journal. And I ran a dozen because I only wanted to use my name on one of them. And I was very active. I created a number of uh, popular communities, including the mathematics community. And if you go to the mathematics community, uh, it, it lists one of my blogs. But the original, the, the primary blog that I had before that was, uh, it was The Hat. Uh, and I can't remember if it had an underscore between T-H-E and H-A-T. But um, I, I, I would publish, I would, uh, I would reevaluate, let's say, scientific studies. And I would mostly target psychology studies because it, it's it's an area with so much corruption. And I would I would target paranormal studies, but sometimes people would send me studies, you know, uh, pharmaceutical studies. And at some point I got bold enough that instead of publishing them on my, um, publishing these takedowns on my uh, anonymous blogs, I started publishing them on the blog that connected to my name. And after a few of these, I got a really scary email by somebody telling me to stop. And they knew where, where, where we lived in Chicago. Um, this is before my wife and I were married, but we were in an apartment um, in the middle of Chicago. And, and whoever sent me this email, you know, made it clear that they knew where we lived. And so I deleted the journal. And, uh, and the next day, I thought better of it. Like, you know, gosh, you know, like people make threats all the time. You know, maybe I shouldn't just you know, I, I don't know, I'd made a snap decision to delete, to delete the blog. So you can just press a button. And this is part, I think this is part of why I did it, because you can just press a button and undelete it. So I pressed the button and it wouldn't undelete. And I find out that within hours of me taking down my blog, someone had taken the name and, and to this day is squatting there so that my original blog cannot be undeleted. Wow. So I think that this is part of like this, this is one of the several reasons, um, you know, why it is that, uh, that I, I, I just sort of, I feel the, the pain, you know, of, of the pressure and the corruption within this system. Many people have felt it much more harshly than I have, but, um, you know, that was, that was a project, you know, I, I had a, I had a dozen different blogs. And part of the reason why I wound up with so many anonymous blogs was that I had, you know, that I would talk about controversial topics, but, um, you know, that, that was one that, that has always bothered me. I wish, I wish that I had never deleted that blog or I wish that I had some way to have backed it up. And this is part of the reason Jessica knows this. She knows that I have multiple copies of everything that I write. Um, you know, that I take it and I have it in, uh, in Word, I have it in, um, you know, Google Docs and I take it and I, and I 
stash it in, in other places. So yeah, uh, it, it, it's a serious problem that goes back decades. For the record, that it, that should be standard practice for everybody. I'm uh, I went to recording school um, uh, uh, just before COVID and continued during it. And one of the things that was emphasized there is if if something doesn't exist in three places, it doesn't exist at all. Nice. Refer referring, of course, to a situation which I've encountered in my pre-COVID, you know, when I ran my studios, I would, uh, it's ter terribly embarrassing, but I didn't follow that practice. And from time to time, once or twice, let's say, I did wind up accidentally corrupting a session file for a, a recording session. And, so and only, I think, one time was it actually like irreparable. Uh, I've been able to salvage every other time. But ever since then, if it doesn't exist, if there are not three backups, it doesn't exist at all. And I think that really applies here. It shouldn't just be Matthew doing that. It should be yeah. everybody. And Liz. Yeah, we actually have three. I was going to ask. <laughs> and, and we have different people who have the code. Um, and then I don't even handle the email. Uh, we have a communications director, and she's amazing. And she handles. So I never even saw a lot of the terrible email that came through directly to the open bears email address. Um, some came directly to me, but most went there and uh, she kept a folder just in case it was ever needed. And, and then it eventually it stopped. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this was a big discussion in our household about whether I should reply to the attacks or if I should just let it be. And um, in the end, it was decided that it was better to let it be that it would go away faster on its own if I didn't fight back, essentially. And is that what has happened? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, that that should be reassuring, because um, I think what you experienced, anybody who takes a stance specifically in, in this issue um, in their own life experiences their own version of, of what you went through. And luckily, most people don't have it get to the point where there's physical violence, like people egging your house, which that's violence. Um, but everybody does go through, whether it's between, you know, friends, whether it's um, rumors within their, their church community or whatever. I think everyone does have to make a decision. Do you push back? Do you become, you know, aggressive in your defense or do you kind of own it and let it brush off? And um, I think it's, it's reassuring to hear that that was the case with you. And you know what? I do think a lot of the time the intention is to put you off balance and then get you to actually make a mistake. Whereas nothing you've done so far is wrong, but you could be triggered into doing something wrong. And That's I think right. we've seen that happen in, in some cases um, yeah. publicly. Well, luckily I'm slow and my husband's slower and we take our time to do everything basically. <laughs> well, speaking of off balance, uh, Liz, I'm curious uh, of your, of, of how this has um, come at you. I know that one of the things that those who dismiss all the VAERS data, like, you know, they, like, well, this data doesn't necessarily mean anything, Well, which is sort of true, but you know, that's the responsibility of, of you know, careful people to figure out what's going on. Uh, but uh, I, I've seen several point to the vaccine safety data link and say, oh, well, you know, this is this is the better system. Yeah, this is the better. And, and it, it's a different system. It's nice in certain ways. But I'm curious as to like how that affects you when you hear it, like, you know, you're just wasting your time with VAERS because it's not the better system. Um, oh, don't even get me started on the BSD. <laughs> so, um, 
<laughs> all these systems are black boxes, essentially, right? We don't know what the structure is. We have no access to them. And we, we, we know nothing except what they tell us. And the they is bias. So I, I like to make the joke that the VSD has never seen a safety signal ever. So early in the myocarditis issue, um, when yep. CDC was admitting there was a myocarditis issue, and we were finding studies in Europe with a myocarditis issue, they did a study on myocarditis with the VSD, which found nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that should tell us everything we know about the, we need to know about the VSD, right? Um, so basically the VSD is something like eight Kaiser hospitals and two demos. Yeah. Um, and the VSD isn't a database in of itself, as far as I can make out from the language that they use to talk about it. It's a link, meaning that somebody could go in and actually query these 10 databases. And, and as we all know as data people, the query is everything, right? It's all about the query and all about the data structure. You can make anything based on that. And that's what they do. And that's what they use the VSD for. Not only that, um, it, these, these sites are all over the country. They're in different geographies. Um, they may have uh, different fundamental demographics to them. And one thing that, that any statistician who's worth their salt knows is that when you start mixing demographics, you wind up um, uh, normalizing, uh, artificially normalizing statistics such that they would not show safety signals. It, it, you, you necessarily, like there's no way to avoid creating some amount of a um, Hope Simpsons paradox. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it would be a way to uh, create a system that disguises safety signals. And in fact, I'm going to share something um, with, with you guys because it's something that I've been working on, I've noticed, uh, but, but you'll, you'll understand this. Uh, I wish I could make this a little bit bigger. This is from uh, one of my articles um, where vaccine safety data link showed that the COVID-19 vaccines had a quote-unquote effectiveness for non-COVID mortality. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and when you look at these numbers, these, these are... And it gets funnier, Liz, because this is, this, I think that this is real, but I'm going to explain wow. where I think this goes. What you see here is up to 72% reduction in non-COVID fatalities. And, and we know this is, I mean, if we just look at the, the line of 18 to 44-year-olds and we see, you know, uh, 60, you know, 50 something, 60 something percent, you know, non-COVID uh, mortality reductions, that's an age group where fully half of the deaths are physical, meaning accidents, suicides, homicides meaning you have to be literally digging into deaths that are, you know, like, oh, you took this product, therefore you didn't get in a car crash. You took this product, therefore you didn't fall off a ladder. Uh, the bullet went around you, you know, like it, it gets silly when you think about it, except that, except that I do think that these numbers are real. And I'll explain what I think that means in terms of vaccine safety data link. What this system is, is a filter for what I call the healthy user bias. And some people call it the healthy vaccine bias. Yeah. This right here tells us how severe that bias is. And most people don't know this bias exists, but we have seen at times, um, you know, flu uh, effectiveness numbers will be published 
uh, like in, you know, in the field, like we see the flu vaccine is 12% or 18% effective or something like that. And then they, they went to, I can't remember if it was Michigan or Michigan State, and found 0% efficacy or effectiveness there. Uh, did, did either of you know that study? Um, okay, well, the, um, I, I saw Toby Rogers write about it a few months ago, and I was like, oh, this is it right here. Um, you know, once you take out the demographic differentials and you don't have that Simpsons paradox, and you don't have the healthy user bias because we have similar demographics, you know, by definition uh, of some some sort of selection process. And and I think a lot of that selection process, I, I think it's two things. I think that it's it's essentially wealth, and wealth is it's a great proxy for health and um, and conscientiousness. And college would be your best, you know, sort of fil filtration device for conscientiousness. And so, you know, we, we see exactly what that bias is right here. And it ain't small. You know, when, wow. when you see 0.28 as a factor, that's a 3.57 to one factor. Of yeah. course, that's going to make vaccines look effective artificially. And I have not seen one study yet, one study yet take this into account. But I'm going to share uh, uh, one more with you. Um, just because what were the seven care? integrated healthcare systems, Matthew? Say that again. What were the seven integrated healthcare systems that you looked at? Oh, the uh, which ones are in uh, in um, the vaccine safety data link? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that list right there. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah. Mostly also, Kaiser Permanente. Yeah, it's right. mostly Kaiser. And also, the thing to keep in mind with this is too, uh, which goes along with right. this healthy user bias, is that. Uh, let's say in California, right? Um, there were just parking lot where people were getting, you know, thousands and thousands of people a day were getting vaccines, not through the HMO um, and pharmacies, not through the HMO. But then what happens is you go in. So the HMO is tracking these vaccine doses through their system. They're not tracking the vaccine doses in their members and their non-members, but in their members who didn't get it at the HMO. It was always hard to get them at the HMO because the lines were long. You had to get an appointment, but you could drive into the, the forum or wherever it was and get your vaccine. Those were not counted. So I'm going to share, um, you know, how, how big is this effect of the, uh, the healthy user bias? Like, how do we know? how effective these vaccines are or aren't. Like in the case of the flu vaccine, I no longer believe there's any efficacy at all. After all that I've seen and, and seeing that one study on the campus that, that you know, completely, it, you know, it's zeroed out all efficacy. Um, now, this is, this is data from the federal government from um, uh, sources like the CDC. Uh, the vaccine data is, I've got seven day moving averages to smooth things out a little bit. These are correlations to COVID deaths. And on the screen right now, I've got this, this uh, trend line for median household income, which is, I think, uh, maybe the best proxy for for health, is is wealth, and this is county by county in all three thousand one hundred forty one U.S. counties, if I have that number correct. So let's take a look at what happens when we add the vaccine correlation data. Yes, there is negative correlation between vaccine uptake and COVID mortality. But what does it look like?
How would you describe this, Jessica or Liz? Should I go back and do that again? Should I explain what these are? Yeah, yes. so it's kind of hard to see too. Okay, this is this is this trend line right here. These are seven-day moving averages of correlations between median household income by county and COVID-19 deaths per that county. And like we see, we see negative correlations right here because wealth is effective in reducing mortality of, yeah. of illness. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we should see negative correlations for vaccine uptake also. In fact, we should see, we should see, you know, severe negative correlations if we have 95% efficacy as claimed. Exactly. Yeah. But, but, and we do see some negative correlations. We do see what appears to be vaccine effectiveness, but I want you to tell me what you notice when, when we add those numbers those correlation numbers, they are usually slightly negative. But what do we see about those vaccine uptake correlation numbers with respect to COVID deaths? They're matching. They're matching. They're tracking median household income. In other words... They're not just matching. They're, they're tracking, like you yeah. just said. Yeah. yeah, they're tracking and, and and median household income is usually more negative. This is the entire effectiveness of the vaccines. And this in the vaccine safety data link helps us see that. Which would if you if you think about how that manifests in the real world, that would explain why the class of people in journalism and in the health, working in the healthcare system and in executive positions, those are all the people in this you know, above a certain income. And they're also the ones we're hearing. We're not hearing from the people who are uh, actually being affected by everything. So it makes sense that to the people represented by this certain income and it's working out great for them, we're going to hear that, hey, things are working out great for us. Um, they, therefore, they're, you know, they're not seeing the vaccine failure. But it's, it's it, it, do I have that right? Like, this is sort of a weird, uh, like, it's, it's, uh, it's a misrepresentation of, of like, we're not hearing from people at large. We're hearing from a specific subclass of people who are experiencing something very different than the rest of the world. That was the end of that thought. <laughs> Every, everybody's lost in a thought here. Are you guys thinking about the healthy user bias? Yeah. Yeah. It, once you see it, it's kind of mesmerizing, isn't it? Yeah. Like it, it really, it really makes it hard to believe that there's any vaccine effectiveness, which, which kind of makes sense. It, it, it should be hard. It should be hard to create a therapeutic that keeps out uh, that I, I don't know that, yeah, keep, keeps a virus out or that that uh, at least to the point that it would cause death. I, I could see. I guess Chris Masterjohn had a theory that that what the vaccines did was actually get in the way of test positivity. And that might be true for the people who are healthier. I've actually wondered, you know, is that also a healthy user bias effect? I've even wondered, you know, since, um, am I correct in saying that the Pfizer and Moderna trials were not randomized control trials, Jessica? Was there any randomized matching? Or was it just, um, it was, it was observation. I know it was observational because it wasn't controlled, but was, was there like proper randomization and, and the, these forms that they get people to fill out, I've actually wondered if they have been able to, over the years, figure out how to game that system and understand where people would be 
in this healthy user bias effect in order to sort them to possibly maybe effect because uh, you know they used to have these trials in hospitals and uh, and they used to have more observation but i you know i doubt they even have somebody observing when they do randomization like it seems like nothing is actually observed anymore no no no, no. like for for shorzers like they're they uh that part of this process has been really really um i don't even know what the word would be to to use to describe it um good protocols have not been followed let's put it that way like uh so yeah um the other thing about uh, i wanted to comment on uh the uh uh the people being tested in in the context of um the injections um, I know in Israel, when they started injecting people, they stopped testing those people who were injected. I, d- I don't know if that has uh, any influence, but uh, just wanted to point that out. <laughs> well, they, they <laughs> that would definitely... Not as much, right? Like it was like a 3.12 to 1 ratio. I, I don't know if I have that number right, but does, does that sound right to you? Like they Yeah, I, I heard that they stopped testing so they weren't getting any data um, from those people anymore. So I, I don't know how it is now. So you're probably right. I, I don't keep up uh, as, as well as I should, but yeah. yeah. I can't remember which one. It was one of those retrospective studies, either the Haas trial or the, um, I can't remember the names of both of them, but I, I think in, in one of those trials, it, it, it became clear once you read through the details that you know, both sides were tested, but one was tested much more. Yeah, the unvaccinated were tested. Oh, much more, so. like the, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Okay. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to uh, I want to ask about this because it seems like every time something usable is ascertained or you you, you start to come on to something, it feels like whatever powers that be throw a curveball. And it appears to me that one of the curveballs that happened fairly recently in the context of VARES is referenced in this little message here. As of 11-18-2022, VARES has stopped putting free text field information into the public data for Europe slash UK. Now, just for a quick point of clarification for those not paying attention, you've got all VARES reports, which includes the United States and international reports, which are also occasionally included uh, in VARES. And uh, then you've got just uh, U.S. and U.S. territories or unknown location uh, included. So open VARES is great because it has a, a little flip, a little switch you can flip to change between that. So something happened to the foreign data, and there's this page on open VARES that explains it further. But Liz, uh, and, and I know this has now complicated how various different people, uh, different VARES analysts, have chosen to, or, or how people are interpreting what this means, how it affects how uh, symptoms are being counted, so on and so forth. There, it's not clear necessarily across the community what this means. So I want to get your perspective, what exactly happened, and what does it mean for both OpenVARES specifically, but also how you interpret the data more generally? Okay, so... And just feel free to jump in if you want to. <laughs> but um, there are. Yeah, two- I know a little bit about this. Just <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. a little. <laughs> there are two fields where we get our data from when we're counting numbers. There is the narrative field, but I call the narrative field. And there is the table of symptoms, which are measure coded symptoms. Um, and to clarify, the measure coded symptoms 
are not part of the original report made by the person or the doctor. These are symptoms that are coded post-fact at the CDC, and we have no idea who's doing that coding. And um, so we look in both. And the reason we look in both are at one, oh, go ahead. I just want to add for anyone that reads my substacks, what Liz is talking about is the symptom columns, which you'll see written as symptom or symptom one through five. And the narrative field is the symptom text. So I, I always call it the symptom text. So just to clarify, if people read yeah. my substack and they're like, oh, what is she talking about? So that, that's what those are. I like using the word narrative because <laughs> that's how I think about it. Um, yeah, it is. So it's near. Okay, so where, where was? <laughs> um, okay, so there are these two fields, and you can look in one or you can look in both. And early on, OpenVAERS uses the um, the foreign data, the whole set of data, right, from 1990 until 2023. Foreign, domestic, we take it all, we suck it all in because we're VAERS, right? We're open VAERS. We're not open U.S. VAERS. Um, and <laughs> what I noticed and what just noticed independently is that the narrative field in the foreign tech, in the foreign records, got a lot of information in it that didn't go into the the like distinct fields. So a good way to think about this is the narrative field would contain an age that wouldn't show up in the age field. Okay. It would contain a VAX lot. It would contain MHRA data. It would contain a ton of information um, and including symptoms. The symptoms wouldn't always get translated into the MEDRA field. And this was, I think, just calculated something like six to one. Is that right? So, um, and I made a decision at the beginning that for some of our queries, we would look there and not a lot of them. I think there are five in our site. And Jess was using it and it made sense because of the preponderance of false negatives over false positives. And, um, and then recently, like, oh, go ahead. Sorry, another important point is, uh, first of all, we're, we're, we're therefore not missing information that we could gather from the symptom text, but because Liz and I are counting people, not right. adverse events, we remove duplicate IDs. So we're not, we're not counting people twice if you were starting to think that, if you're really smart and you're following along. <laughs> so yeah. Thank you. Yes, that's a good clarification. Yeah. We are counting individual IDs not individual symptoms. And um, and then one morning, wake up, go to do the data. There's a new disclaimer, which you can see on our site. And, um, and all of the free text field information from the UK and Europe is gone. Um, and so this includes not just the narrative field, right? But it also includes lab data, patient history, um, I, I mean, I can't like every free text field that was available for researchers to look at is now disappeared out of the data. They did not delete the report. Go ahead. And, and another important thing, uh, springboarding off what you just said, the history 
field is really important yeah. if you're trying to assess something new developing. So say you have a, a MEDRA code uh, for Kurtzfeldt-Jakob disease uh, in someone's uh, She's breaking um, up. report. But yeah. Uh, or, Maybe that's not a good, no, bad example. Let's, diabetes let's use multiple really sclerosis. Good, diabetes okay. is a really if, good Am one. I still here? Yeah, yeah there's a bit of a delay going on between uh, Jessica's internet and the well, rest of us over here make, in North America. I'm going to make Jessica's point for her. Diabetes is a good example. So okay. There's diabetes that's new onset, and there's diabetes that happens as a result of the vaccine, right? And without the history, we can't know if the diabetes in the Medra code is actually referring to old diabetes or new onset diabetes. Exactly. Right? So, okay. So anyways, they removed them all. In the process, that changed our numbers dramatically. And um, not dramatically. I would say it changed our numbers in some of our fields in, in dramatically. And in some of them, it had no effect at all. And... Um, and so when that happened, I went back and I did some research to figure out if without those fields, if without that information, my numbers still made sense. And I did a sampling to see if that was the case, right? So, and this has taken like sort of months of like trying to figure out what's going on. And, um, and I'm working on it and I read 400 reports as a sample on myocarditis and um, uh, and randomized and found basically what was three sets of reports. There were reports that had, that should have said myocarditis in the Medra field and didn't very clearly, that should have said, that, that didn't say it and didn't mean it. Like the word myocarditis came up in the report, but it wasn't, it wasn't a really a myocarditis case. This is not what it was about. And then there were all these other reports that were patient needs to follow up. And there are terms in the data that are very clear about that. And there's a lot of those. Um, but when I combined those sort of maybes with yeses um, and compare those to the noes, they, they were about equal. And in that case, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop looking there because if they're equal, all they're doing is raising the numbers for no reason. The, it's all the same. Um, and so that's what happened with the European data. Um, but, you know, it, it's important to keep in mind um, with both Jess's work and mine that um, we're doing sort of data live, like in real time. And, and that's difficult, right? Because everything I do with OpenVares or she does with her data, it, it goes immediately into the public sphere. And, and so, you know, people are watching that and tracking it. And go ahead. No, finish your thought. I just oh, want to interject. That people are watching it and tracking it while you're doing it. And that is both the beauty and the difficulty of the internet, right? That I, I can produce something and put it out there and it's immediate, but it isn't always perfect. And Perfection is not like the goal or the possible. Not possible. It's an imperfect data set, right? Like all we're doing is yeah, exactly. with an imperfect data set. So, I mean, you know, a good example of that is 
at the same time as the um, European data went down, and I'm looking at all of my queries, I, I noticed that one query just didn't sort of make sense. And, and I noticed that, so three months ago, I redid OpenVAIR's backend. And I re-engineered it, and I had help from an engineer, and because it, it was it was just dying under the weight of its own like number of records and users, and it needed to be cleaned up. And in the process, and we did that, and it took six months. And then two weeks before we were going to launch it, my old system died, and I had to launch it early. And um, so I'm looking at the numbers, and I'm like. That one doesn't make sense, right? Like it just doesn't make sense, the myocarditis number. Um, and um, and I looked at that number over and over again and didn't see that um, as we were merging from one system to the other system, one of the queries that we rewrote, um, it was overly broad, basically. It was not what I would have liked to have seen there. And I didn't notice it at the beginning. And then and it took a while to find. And um, And I corrected it last week. Um, and when I corrected it, numbers went down. And this was a term that was in the MEDRA terms. It was not in the symptoms field. And um, in fact, my symptom field hits were very low when, when I did a query for just what's in the symptoms based on my old query um, and not in MEDRA terms, right? So looking just in the narrative with no MEDRA associated, those were fairly low. Um, but this overly broad term in the measures itself was kind of high. And so our numbers dropped quite a bit, but I have no choice, right? Like I have to, I can't hide the fact that, no, this is a better query now. It, it's better than it was before. It's more accurate. And my, my goal is always for more accuracy in a very inaccurate system. Um, I, I'm not trying to like have inflated numbers for the sake of having inflated numbers. I don't really agree with doing that for any reason. Um, but yeah, sometimes things change. Next week or this week, I have to put the data up still this week. This week, um, cardiac cases are going to go up on open VARES by a number larger than the data because we re-examined the cardiac numbers and we got Peter McCullough to help us with that. And, and we have more terms now that should be there that weren't there before. So that's gonna go up. Um, and this is a continual process with open bears, but often it's not so noticeable as our red and white boxes. Um, the red and white boxes are very used and very visible, but we have like, a, you know, lots of pages on our site and those are being tweaked on a very regular basis to get better results. So yeah. it, seems, it seems to me that um, like the, I'm getting some familiarity from your how you're explaining this with many other aspects of of trying to understand what's going on in in the crisis here, and you have many different people with their different specialties and areas of interest looking at the same stuff, who all have different perspectives on what should be focused on, how it how it should be analyzed, how it should be then presented, what should be held back. Uh, versus put out right away, um, which, uh, you know, uh, which, which things should, you know, be released through official mainstream sources versus grassroots, so on and so forth. Uh, and then of course you just have people in the end who are just have different perspectives on, on, uh, on life in general. And that affects every other factor I just said. So it seems to me what you're describing is what you believe is the best most honest most uh efficient and most practical way 
to get this very important information to a target audience yeah. that may not be the, the you know, consumer audience the consumer that, needs that information yeah exactly my audience is different than everybody else's audience right everybody's got a little niche um i'm trying to give digestible information to the people who otherwise wouldn't have it essentially mm. Um, and I'm trying to do that in the most honest way possible. And, and it's greatly appreciated. I, I'm going to jump in. Um, and Jessica, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll pass the baton to you in a minute. I know you've been, uh, you, you have, you have a thought up there that you've got, the, you've got the Pac-Man going. Pac-Man going on. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm more the lay person than the two of you, given that I've spent a tiny fraction of the amount of time that the two of you have with fairs. But one of the things that um, that I remember discovering, Liz, on on your site when I would uh, when I would read through some of the reports was there was enough information on some of these reports that an honest, casual observer could make a pretty good judgment that some of these were due to the vaccines. You will see very complete descriptions, whether it's because the nurse took the time or because the report was written by a spouse or a parent or, you know, um, you know, you see uh, onset after five minutes, you know, onset after two hours, you know, three hours later, patient was in cardiac arrest, right? You you see that like people can say all day long, um, we have no, you know, VAERS does not show causality which if you're just looking at numbers, that's true, right? I mean, we do need to understand things like background rates. We do need to understand, you know, um, what portion of each event we're capturing in order to be able to filter out the background rate and say these are the ones that are new. VAERS doesn't do that on its own very well. But if you read through these reports, you'd have to be pretty obtuse to walk away saying, none of this looks like it's vaccine associated. Yeah, can I give you an example of that? That's really, really good. Please, please so do. You'll notice on the red box report page, there's two numbers that are seem very similar. One is for anaphylaxis, and one is for uh, severe vac- severe allergic reactions. Um, and the anaphylaxis one is way smaller. If you scroll up a little, dram a little, yeah. So if you see severe allergic reaction, okay, this is a really good example of where symptom text narrative field is being employed versus medra code, okay? So anaphylaxis is anything that has the word anaphylaxis in it, in the medra fields, or it's not exactly anaphylaxis, but you get the idea. 41,912 severe allergic reaction comes from a very complicated query I wrote for the narrative field as well. It includes the anaphylaxis numbers, but it's an extra 30,000, right, of reports that look like this. Um, Anaphylaxis in the report, but not converted into a MEDRA term. Not anaphylaxis. The use of an EpiPen spelled in multiple different ways. The use of an EpiPen plus hospitalization. The use of um, uh, Benadryl. IV Benadryl, and then there's a host of other drugs that are used during an anaphylactic reaction. Um, 41,000 of them, right? Not 10,000. So um, this is a case where I can do this and you can't otherwise do it, right? You can't do it on a VAR site and you can't do it um, with a MEDRA search. But, But these are very clear anaphylactic reactions that aren't getting converted. Now, 
it gets worse than that, right? Because then what happened early in the pandemic was, I think it was Shimabukuro, Dr. Shimabukuro um, at the CDC basically used anaphylaxis and said, well, there's almost none, right? And the way he right. did that was by applying the Brighton scale. Now, the problem is that the Brighton scale lists um, anaphylaxis levels by a set of symptoms and combinations of symptoms. And um, in VAERS reports sometimes don't have that, right? They're VAERS reports. Sometimes they just say anaphylaxis. Sometimes they might say anaphylaxis right. and rash. Um, those won't qualify as anaphylaxis, even though that's what the person reported, an anaphylactic reaction. And are we supposed to just not take that seriously or ignore the fact that they're reporting it because they didn't include, you know, whether there were three different bodily symptoms affected or two different bodily symptoms affected? Um, that's a real problem for for looking at the data and trying to assess these things and how they sort of make the data disappear. Jessica, did you get a chance to give your thought? Uh, yeah, I'll just extend that thought and then say what I was going to say. I wrote it down because I forget everything. Uh, they do this with um, abortions as well. Like, I don't know how many different Medra codes to describe a miscarriage there are now, but there are a lot. A lot. And, and this is, if, if I was going to try to hide a signal or to spread a signal out so that it didn't look like one signal coming from one thing, that's how I would do it. I would use abortion, spontaneous miscarriage, uh, fetal death. You know, I would use a, a bunch of different terms to describe the same thing. It's the same thing. So like this is this is the human component of what I'm doing and what Liz is doing. We do a lot of reading when we're doing this and we do a lot of thinking. And both of us are very similar because we're very cautious about what we're calling what. And and like her example just now of anaphylaxis is fantastic. Uh, spontaneous abortion or miscarriages, same thing. Um, and it raises that 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 in really uh, hardcore uh, important point about the human aspect of both the data and the analysis of the data. Um, so having said that, what I was going to say before was um, no matter what Liz is reporting or what I'm reporting, neither of us consider an underreporting factor, which is probably one of the biggest problems associated with bears. So you're always going to see underestimates by a long shot. So you can always kind of feel confident that you're, what, what we're showing you is at least as many. <laughs> it's probably far less than the real picture. And I really do mean far. Yeah, um, I mean, you can show that. We showed that with the, um, the vSafe data. So VSafe had a rule. There were 800,000 people in VSafe that reported having to have medical intervention. And VSafe had in right. their protocol that those 800,000 people um, should make a report to VAERS. That, they, that should be, those were the reports that should have been going to VAERS and that they would call every one of those 800,000 people and make sure <laughs> they made a report. Well, there are 30,000-ish reports in VAERS that are identified as VSafe data. Right. So we calculated very simply on the back of an envelope. That's a 26 X reporting that under reporting factor, which comes very close to Jess and Steve's 31 to 41. Um, 
So I think we, we, and this does not include death, right? Because there are no V-safe deaths or almost no V-safe deaths because no one reports their own death. And we don't right. get updated reports if someone dies later. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so just one more thing. I, I Can I just throw one more thing? Like from the, um, another perspective from a, a, a person analyzing VAERS data, like the effect of the gutting of the free text data from the foreign data set was not just a decrease in the magnitude of signals, which is also why Liz's numbers went down. I want to stress that point. Like my numbers, if you go to my website now, the Jessica's Universe, I'm, I'm tracking, you know, a bunch of things. And I have a top set of numbers for some adverse events and a bottom set. And the top set is the last count before the gutting of the foreign data set. And the bottom is the running count as the updates are coming in. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, they haven't, they haven't even reached what they were. So this really affected the magnitude. It's, it's the previous, the homepage, um, whoever is showing the screen. Yeah. But not only that, I wrote this up in a Substack as well. If you, you can just keep going down. It wasn't just the magnitude of the signals, cancer, myocarditis, et cetera, that went down. Like you can see here, myocarditis and cancer, they still haven't caught up to what they were by a long shot. So anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Death is caught up. Um, and I include spontaneous abortions when I count deaths here. Another, you know, it's it's a variation in, in how you, you, you do your counts. Um, so the... The worst part about what I found about the purge of the foreign data set was that I lost this gorgeous, distinct dose three signal for myocarditis. So if you analyze the domestic data on its own, like Liz, Liz has that amazing little button where you can flip between to get the numbers. But if you actually like analyze and make charts of the, of the myocarditis reports in the domestic data set versus the foreign data set, they don't look anything alike, first of all. In the domestic data set, you, you, can you bring up that myocarditis chart again that you had on first? You'll notice, um, even though the, the signal uh, has, has uh, steadily been decreasing, which we can talk about as well, the, uh, the dose two, so if you go to the, the second page, the dose two signal is, is still ever present and what I mean by that is the there's uh, like a four fourfold uh, higher reporting rate. Can you go to the second page there? The second uh, for page for myocarditis in, in children. Yeah, it's it's the uh, go up a bit. Yeah, the VAERS data analysis. Okay. So this is what I'm talking about. So there's a dose two response, which is uh, it, it's an amplified response in the context of the second shot in younger people. And that's, it's been that way for a long time. This was one of the main findings in this myocarditis paper I wrote with Peter that got yanked. So this signal you can see in the domestic data set, but I wish, I wish we had a chart. I should really make, uh, update my website to show this. Um, but if you want to pull up on the substack that I wrote on this, we can show everyone what I'm talking about. There used to be this beautiful dose three response um, in the foreign data set, 
which wasn't just a signal for younger people. It was distributed across all ages. Yeah. Is this the article in question? Uh, nope. Uh, nope. It was, um, it, it was, uh, something about, yeah, something about gutting the foreign data set. It should be in the title. Oh, 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 got um, it. It's on the other, uh, okay, one sec. Um, and so, finding it. this beautiful signal that was, I mean, it's very rare in data. Yeah, it's here. It's very rare in data, especially data as messy as VAERS. Here it is that you see a very clear signal. So if you can see on the left here on the top, that's what it looked like before the data purge. These blue bars are the dose, the um, reports of myocarditis from the foreign data set uh, for dose three, for people who had three doses of any one of the Moderna, Pfizer, or Janssen shots. So it, and it, after the purge, it, are, are we just not diagnosing it in the U.S.? It, could that be what's going on? Could it be that the U.S. Could be. came up with some system? It could be. And, and, and or, the U.S. came up with some system to route around those diagnoses, but Europe hadn't been like, given the memo. It's harder to give that memo like, to like, you know, dozens of countries. Yeah, yeah. Like putting the data in the foreign data set. Because another thing a lot of people don't know is that the distribution of adverse event reports is pretty much 50-50, no matter what standalone adverse uh, event you look at. Like if you look at death, if you look at uh, heart attacks, if you whatever you, you want to look at, if you count the number of reports in the domestic and foreign data set, it's pretty much 50-50, not exact. Not so in myocarditis, and it never has been. It's been like one to six. So most of the myocarditis reports were appearing in the foreign data set, and I never figured out why. But here, uh, but going back to the signal loss, it's it's entirely gone. Yeah, it, so it, it's a reflection it, it, of how important to go between countries. Like I, I know that like pots, which is you know uh, sometimes pointed to as as an adverse event from some vaccines, uh, it's diagnosed differently from country to country, um, and so yep. we see you know varying rates around Europe. Um, in particular, um, uh, according to what they decide some collection of symptoms means from one location to another. Um, but I, I want to throw this out for anybody listening. Um, it, it, is, it is highly unusual in any kind of a running experiment to, to put like to stop some form of data. Um, I, I, one, of, one of my favorite principles is all data is useful. If you're not using it, that's just uh, that's an economic uh, signal, right? If, if you decide you're not going to use some set of data, it's just it's too hard to clean. You know, you have better your time is better spent elsewhere. But but all data is useful. You don't stop. Um, and and when you do stop in the middle of an experiment, you're changing. You're creating a discontinuity for any signals that you would be looking at. So that that is an intentional disruption of yeah. the of the entire system. You know, it, it, it's not just that VAERS is, is imperfect. Um, you know, every system is imperfect. It's not just that VAERS is imperfect or, or that it's clunky. I mean, they could have made it better years ago. They even ran studies on how to make it better, and then they didn't implement the changes. Um, but but they, they've sabotaged their own database by doing this. They have sabotaged what it is that we can learn from these signals. Though oddly, and, and, and I want to throw this out into the ether because it, it feels so weird lately i have felt for over a year like we were being 
intentionally fed the truth about all of this, just one breadcrumb at a time. <laughs> like it, it is, it's <laughs> almost bizarre how the information comes out, whether it's, you know, safety signals from a FOIA, whether it's, um, yeah. whether it, it's, uh, I don't know, uh, the fact that, that Pfizer hired 24, no, no, they, what did they hire 1800 with the plan to hire 600 more, 2,400 people to run their own VAERS system? Oh, and all they needed was a high school diploma. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but VAERS, as somebody pointed out, mind. Yeah. Um, it, it takes 50 people to run the VAERS system. So that should give people an idea of, of how, of, of what the signals were expected, expected to look like already. And we keep getting new pieces of information that look as if there was an expectation over and over again, not to mention the, the planning ahead of time for, for all of this. Yeah. And, and it, it just feels eerie. I want to throw that out there because I want people to be collecting, you know, uh, to be making a mental, um, collection of what feels like um, not only not only have, have has a crime been committed, but oddly, oddly, the authorities seem to want us to know. But and, on their schedule, yeah, it's really but on their schedule. Right. There, uh, there, there's something very, very fishy about that aspect of everything. Well, if I can if I can just elaborate on that before I take us into final thoughts, I've found when I've read some of these scenarios that have been run that wound up being quite similar to what we've experienced, for example, the spars pandemic planning scenario, um, have 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 you have you three read that by any chance? Yeah, but I read part of it. I highly recommend reading it through in full, which I have yet to fully do. I've also only skimmed it because we only have so much time. But I think mm -hmm. there I think it's worthwhile to go into for this aspect, because part of that scenario, which which was fictional, um, uh, was vaccine <laughs> injuries that. Um, it, what I'm saying is the slow drip of information that began as misinformation and then became confirmed by official sources and then eventually leading to a degree of accountability. All of that is described and sort of war gamed out in this, with this example of a scenario. And so I think that that doesn't necessarily, again, correlation doesn't equal causation. What I think it shows is there's the potential for an intentional slow drip of information because it's inevitable that information will get out. So to best manage such a situation, it would help to be on both sides of that arrangement. And um, in the case of FOIAs, as Jay Cooey has pointed out, they are 100% controlled by those actually handing over the documents, meaning you can invoke all sorts of different things. The best, of course, being, oh, well, this was legal advice. We can't give this out. Or there, there's a bunch of reasons why they can be withheld and even more reasons trade why documents secrets. can be slow rolled. Yeah, trade secrets is another one. So I want to turn us now into final thoughts. Um, we are, Matthew and I, going to have a conversation with a number of other VAERS analysts in a couple of weeks. So um, for now, though, um, is there anything else, Matthew, you wanted to ask or bring up specifically... Um, that Liz or Jess can opine on or can provide us insight into before we let them go. 
I, I think I just did with my uh, with my summary of uh, useful data and discontinuity of of information. But uh, I just want to uh, I, I, I've talked to Jessica many times and we, and we know each other well. But I just want to say, Liz, thanks so much for the work that you've done um, and and for all that you've shared. We hadn't uh, Liz and I had never spoken before. We've exchanged emails, um, but uh, this is the first time we've spoken. And uh, so, you know, I, I greatly appreciate the work that you've done. Uh, Open Bears is where. Um, you know, while I was learning, you know, what, what the reports looked like and what was in them, um, you know, Open Bears was where I was where I went most of the time. Awesome. Thank you. Um, it's so great to meet you, too, because I read all your work well, and I understand a portion of it. And um, it's, uh, it's fun to be able to finally talk in person. OK, well, thank you guys so much, Jessica, Liz, any final thoughts specifically? What do you want people to be left with? Uh, what what what? What can people do? And more importantly, what should people be looking for to best understand what's going on? Uh, or, but more broadly, any final thoughts before we let you go? Uh, Jess, I'm, I'm kicking it to um, Jess. <laughs> yeah, I, well, somebody asked what Peter McCullough's take on something was. Can, can you elaborate a take on what? The paper being withdrawn? Uh, I can answer that if you elaborate. Um, but yeah, one of the things I love... Uh, I, I'm always plugging Substack, so I'm going to do it again. Uh, I, I'm doing a lot of writing. Um, about half of what I'm doing, I suppose, is like um, uh, peer-reviewed journal article synopses and, and kind of like uh, biology 101 courses. Um, but I also do a lot of reporting on what I'm finding in VAERS. And what I love about... Uh, this system is the feedback I get from you guys. So it's so invaluable to me. Uh, I, I can, I think I can speak for Liz too. Like the feedback that I'm getting uh, on how to improve what I'm doing uh, in every way from querying to ideas is so valuable. So keep that up. Like, because we are doing this in real time, you know, as deplorable as VAERS is, it's an excellent database size-wise, uh, it does represent people. And like the more people who know about what's going on there in the context of these shots, the better. And uh, it, it's also helping people like Brie Dressen has uh, React 19 and she's also got her own database of injured people. So we're like converging on, on this subject matter and it's oh, helping people. Too. Right. And it's really helping people because like you mentioned suicides, a lot of people feel alone. A lot of people are being gaslit. A lot of people feel nuts that they're going through what they're going through. So if there's a way, an approachable way to see that you're really not alone, you know, that's, that's what we need to do. So um, I, I want to say thanks. I think that's, that's my final thought for support and, um, yeah, feedback and keep it coming, man. Like, and Liz, this was super fun. Um, we got to do this again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we know. We know. Liz loves speaking publicly. That. <laughs> and uh, you know, that's what I, I. I. I've never wanted it to be about me, and and it was never my goal to have a following or be like I. And I so appreciate the people who do that because it's so much harder than what I do. Hmm. It's so much harder to be here um than hiding behind my computer and my numbers right um, <laughs> we, get, 
We get so many uh, wonderful emails from people um, and we really appreciate them as well. And I do take changes of, that people suggest into account. We've added that switch that takes you from uh, US to foreign data was a user suggestion. Um, some of my search criteria is when you go into the search area. Steve Kirsch is a really, you know, he, he sends a lot of suggestions my way. Um, and we try to accommodate them as well. And then I he gives me a lot of great ideas too. Right? He calls me yeah. up. He's like, hey, this is what I want. <laughs> give me a month or two and um, we'll build it in. Um, <laughs> and that's great. I love that. Um, uh, and then I also, um, we had a blind user, an almost blind user. And so with my redo, I added um, accessibility to the site. And it's the little wow. orange ball at the top right. And if you click on it, you can make things bigger, smaller, change contrast, add contrast. Um, you can do all sorts of things for the visually impaired, which we now have more of. Some of those people were vaccine injured. And so um, so send me ideas. Um, not on Twitter, please, because <laughs> there's a really hard place <laughs> conversation happen yes. but um in any other way an email works and it's awesome rock on well thank you guys so much as you can see the chat is just lighting up with thanks so um we'll, we'll look forward to having you guys on again and before we let the running the earth audience go i just want to remind everybody that we talking about community and feedback <laughs> rounding the earth has been um, really active in getting our locals page set up. And um, we have a community of, we've we've just about hit 500 members, which uh, is nothing quite compared to the following that Matthew has developed on his Substack. But the people who have come to our locals page are very active in participating and in sharing information with us. And as you guys have described, giving feedback. And it's not always stuff that Matthew wants to hear. It's not always stuff that I want to hear, but it's all useful and it's all very helpful so everyone um if you haven't yet go to runningtheearth.locals.com you can sign up to be a free member of the community um you can also choose to pay and support and that will give you access to exclusive weekly live streams that we do where we talk about stuff not yet ready for full public consumption um, but regardless the main thing is just having you as part of the community and of course go to openvares.com keep an eye out every week for the new numbers as they come up um, because as dark as they uh, uh, what they represent is quite dark, but the information is important nonetheless, and we must be equipped in this battle of information in order to stay alive. So thank you again so much for being with us. And yeah, we look forward to uh, another week of living in this crazy, crazy world. And thank you for finding a way to maintain good humor through all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it gets stressful. <laughs> That's what we have each yeah. other for every morning. Yeah. Hey, are you there? Yeah, and it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you wake <laughs> it. <laughs> Did you say that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, everybody. On that note, we will see you later. <laughs>